0: John 14, verses 1 through 11. I'll read and I encourage you to follow along. Jesus is speaking at the beginning of chapter 14, and he says in verse 1 Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. As our prayer, Father, we thank you for your word again. May it lighten our hearts and build us up together. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. Our theme and our title for our message this morning is A Home for the Troubled Heart. And it clearly comes from that first verse here, this first uh, verse that we've read. Uh, if you came in through th- those doors, which I'm sure 99% of you did this morning, um, you had an opportunity to pick up a sermon um, outline. It might be something helpful to you to follow along, or it might just be helpful to know when I'm eventually going to stop. But they are on the back table if you didn't get one. Um, but we like to, I like to break up my sermons into four different points, a call, a conflict. A moment where we look to Christ and then where we walk in the completion of what God's word is through him. Um, so hopefully that'll be helpful to you. But first and foremost, our main point here in thinking about a home for the troubled heart is to let a homeward perspective calm your troubled heart. I don't know if you've ever been on any kind of traveling experience, either on the road or in the air, and just had that, that desperate desire to get home. I shared probably last year or sometime before of a difficult trip through a wintry spring break um, many years ago that uh, just highlighted that to me so much. A trip that should have taken four hours ended up being eight hours. And through the snow and the sleet and the ice and all the worries of things going wrong with the car and all those kinds of things, I just was hit with this great overwhelming sense of how wonderful it would be to finally be home place where my troubles will be dealt with and they'll be over. Of course, coming to our temporary homes, our troubles aren't necessarily over, are they? But there's still that sense there, right? There's still this idea that home is where we belong. It's where things, in one sense, are are put right, at least sort of. And what Christ is calling us to is a perspective of our true home. The one that he says he's going to prepare for us. But let's consider the troubles that his disciples, those closest to him, are experiencing right now. When Jesus' words come to their ears, let not your hearts be troubled, he's addressing the fact that they are most clearly troubled. And of course, Jesus knows even better than they know how deep these troubles truly run through the hearts of those who followed him. In chapter 13, we saw Jesus wash the feet of his disciples. And then from that great picture of humility and love, he talks about one of the 12 of his closest friends who would betray him. And not just betray him by not showing up for an event or not doing something he asked him to, but rather handing him over to be killed. This troubled the hearts of the disciples. Peter then speaks up after Jesus had said, you can't follow me where I'm going. Peter says in verse 36, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where i am going? You cannot follow me, but you will follow me afterwards. 37, Peter says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. To which Jesus replies, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Something important I want you to think about as you read your Bibles, particularly as you read the words of Jesus, don't let Jesus turn into a robot in your mind who just knows all things and just spouts off future facts as if they're nothing? When Jesus spoke these words to Peter, will you lay down your life for me? He's not saying, I know something you don't know. You're going to betray me too. He says, with that heart of love and compassion that we see in our verse today in verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. You can imagine, perhaps even with tears welling up in his eyes, that he says, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. And Yet these words then come to the ears of disciples who hear somebody's betraying him. Judas is gone. We don't even necessarily know if it was him that did it. He just told Peter that he's going to deny him. If Peter's going to deny him, what about Thomas? What about Philip? What about the rest of the the 11 who remain? I don't think any of them were sitting there thinking the same thing as Peter after Jesus said, Peter, you yourself are going to deny me. They were all troubled. And as we talked about two weeks ago, John points out to us that it was night in the end of verse 30 of chapter 13. Just to give that setting, that framework for this story happening in, at night, in the dark night of the soul of our Savior when he would be betrayed. These things are troubling the hearts of the disciples, but what is most troubling them is this sentence from verse 33. After he'd already called them little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. That's the opposite of what a follower wants to hear from the one whom they follow. Have you ever had one of your kids or a niece or nephew or maybe in junior worship or something, say, and, you know, they're following you and you say, hey, listen, you can't follow me where I'm going. And seeing the look on their face diminish, what do you mean? I have to be with you all the time. You saw one particular two-year-old laying on the steps earlier. Was not okay with not being with dad. How do you tell a, uh, sorry, she's three now. How do you tell a three-year-old, you have to sit right there and I'm going over here. She wasn't content with eight, not 10 feet of distance. Imagine these disciples who had given up their entire livelihoods, all of their purpose and all of their dreams and plans to follow Jesus. And now, after three years of doing that, how troubled their hearts must be, yet how compassionate our Lord is. So one of the things that we find in this call to have a homeward perspective to calm our troubled hearts is in these first four verses, we find a perfect promise. And I wanted to call it a perfect promise because there are things that we say to our kids, we say to each other, and really what we ought to say is, you know, my plan is to do this or I'm hoping that it works out this way. We have to put a qualifier at the beginning or end of our sentences of I'll be back soon or you're going to junior worship. We don't know. But when Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms, that I have a home for you, He he then qualifies it again in verse 2. He says, If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? There's not a chance. Jesus would not tell his disciples something unless it was 100% true. He's not saying, Hey, my plan is, my hope is, if everything works out, I will hear the certainty in Christ's words. And we'll see exactly why he is certain later. But this perfect promise is given to us. We have a home. We have a father. In my father's house, there are many rooms. And he's not inviting his people in to be guests. He's inviting them to be residents. We all know the difference, right? You know the difference between being in your own home and being in someone else's home. Even if that someone else is someone very close to you, even if you feel so at home there, there's no place like home. Home is different. Home is the singular instance. And and really, it's not even about location. It's about who else is there, right? And that's why it's so striking and it's so impacting to us to consider. In my Father's house are many rooms. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I am going. Home is an important theme in all of Scripture, but it's also an important theme in some of my favorite literature and movies. I'm not going to do a Lord of the Rings quote this morning. This is from The Hobbit. (laughs) Towards the end of the book, spoiler alert, it's been out for almost 100 years, next decade, actually. Towards the end of the story, when one of the dwarves is saying his last words to The Hobbit, the title character, Bilbo Baggins after this long journey of Bilbo going with these dwarves to try to reclaim their home, what was rightfully theirs, to bring them their place, just as Bilbo had. And throughout the journey, Bilbo has a lot of moments where he's like, just wish I was home, just wish I was sitting by my fire, reading my book, sitting in my easy chair, going out to the garden, all those kinds of things, right where Gandalf would have left me if he wouldn't have said anything in the beginning. And Thorin, the dwarf, says, and this is a, Collaboration of the movie quote and the book quote, because I couldn't decide, so I put them together. Thorin says to Bilbo, if more of us valued home above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. If more of us valued home above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. And that's true for us, not just in in the immediate sense. There's there's something true about valuing home that enriches the life of our culture, the life of those around us, even. Because our homes are a place not just of belonging, but they're a place of invitation. But it's true even more so for those who know that they have a heavenly dwelling, a guaranteed place to live in Christ, with Him forever. Home is where our hope comes from, where all of our joy, all of the goodness in our lives, anything that we bring that enhances the world around us comes from our home, comes from that hope that we have. To have that homeward perspective is to essentially to tap into all that we have in Christ. And that homeward perspective doesn't mean that you lock yourself in your basement and you just think about heaven 24-7, but that as you go about your days and as you face the troubles of this life, you faith, face it with the sure assurance rather that you have a home that you are going to. Bilbo, he wanted to get back home, but it was not a guarantee. Spoiler alert again for almost 100-year-old book, he did get back home, and he did find peace, even though there were so many trials along the way. But truly, none of us even have a guarantee that we're going to make it home from church this morning. We don't know. But for those who have their hope in Christ, we have a hope that we will make, make it to our true home. And that in that true home, J.C. Ryle says, we will find a place where we are generally loved for our own sakes and not for our gifts or possessions. Because what happens when you invite people over to your house? You actually clean it up, right? Like you actually say, I'm getting this vacuum out, dusting off the dust on top of the vacuum. Listen, I'm just talking from my own experience. Maybe you'll relate or maybe not. But you get the house ready. You put things in order. You... You, you know, fluff the pillows on the couch. You do those kinds of things to make it an inviting place. Hopefully, you know, sometimes there's a temptation to just make it look like we have more together than we actually do. Again, just speaking from my own experience, if you can relate, that's your own fault, sorry. But home is where we are generally loved for our own sakes, Ryle says, not for our gifts, our possessions, or not for how clean our home is, or for how presentable it is, or how welcoming, but just for ourselves for who we are in Christ. In this home that Jesus describes to us, we find a sanctuary from our problems and a sanctuary even from our need for performance, our, our need to, to produce week in and week out and to show accomplishment over, you know, even in our homes, you know, what's, what's one of the things most, most of the easiest com- conversation starters are, so what did you do to the place in the last couple weeks or whatever, Right? can even have rest from that because the home is already prepared for us, Jesus says. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. He certainly makes heaven sound like a really great place. One thing that's unique to the Gospel of John as compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Jesus talks about end times things, um, what we call eschatology, those final things like heaven and hell and uh, the end of the earth and all those kinds of things, usually it is in the tone of a warning. You know, be watchful, beware, be ready. But when John points out the words of Jesus in regards to end things, he does so for the purpose of comforting the saints. I'm not trying to say that Matthew, Mark, and Luke leave that alone entirely, but what you get eschatologically in the Gospel of John is a comfort of a home prepared for you. Jesus goes to prepare a place for us to make a home For us with him. So, what troubles us this morning? Because we're not sitting in the upper room with the other 11, right? We're not sitting under the trouble of who's denying Jesus and who's going to betray him and when is he going to come back. It's not the exact same circumstances, but what Jesus' words carry in power and in impact cover truly any kind of trouble that you face this morning be it sickness, sadness, or perhaps even sin or death. It's necessary for us to consider those kinds of things while we're here, while the home that we go to is a temporary place, is a tent, really, compared to our true and lasting home in Christ. It's necessary for us to consider those things here, but all those troubles are done away with when we see him face to face, when we're brought to our true home. So let that lead us to the conflict of our passage this morning. Can we know enough to calm our hearts? Is there enough Bible reading that you can do, enough theological study, enough writing and and contemplating and conversation to make you say, I'm done. I have no more troubles. It would be a sort of um, a Christian illuminated state, you know, if it were, which is not a promised thing in the Bible that, that we could come to such a degree of knowledge that we could live in perfect peace without any worry whatsoever. It's not promised to us. Again, we see things in Scripture like, let not your hearts be troubled, or as Paul says, cast your cares on him because he cares for you. There's an assumption, an assumption in the Word of God that you're going to have troubles and that they're not going to end and that in most cases, those troubles are going to get worse. Consider, again, the child's perspective And the tears as they run into the next room looking for you with terror on their face. You go, what's wrong? Are you hurt? Is the house on fire? And they go, she took my crayon. Oh, woe is me. It's easy for us as adults to look at a child's concerns and say, that ain't nothing. You ever pay taxes before? Do you ever have to fix the car? Do you ever have this issue or that issue? Thankfully, our Father in Heaven isn't one to have that kind of attitude with us. Though we certainly would with each other in some cases, right? Don't you love those one-upper conversations where you want to go talk to a friend and you want to just say, man, life's been really hard. I'm dealing with this issue and that issue. And they go, oh yeah? Let me tell you about me. You want to hear what I'm going through? I mean, is that like, it's kind of funny because a lot of us do that. It's not, not I'm just trying to make anybody feel guilty. But what goes on in our minds as we're hearing somebody else talk about their troubles that make us think, I know how to fix this. I'm going to play the comparison game. And they're going to feel so much better about the petty issues that they face. And because we know that some of our friends even do that, we don't talk to them about those things. And sometimes the danger is, is that we put that on God as well. God might look at my troubles and just say, hey, I'm an infinite... Uh, omnipotent, eternal God, I—those things are so beneath me. I'm dealing with things like world hunger and pandemics and societal downfall. Why are you bringing me your flat tire story? He's not like that at all, is he? See, the problem, though, that we come into is that this—these troubles that we face, these anxieties—to use more common. W- phrase here can't just be dealt with either by saying, Hey, look, there are worse problems out there. So forget about yours. They also can't be dealt with by saying, Hey, don't worry. Everything's going to work out. I know everything just works out. Things just work out in the end. Oh my goodness. That's, that's what it sounds like. Doesn't it sometimes when you talk to those things, just work out people, they just can't stop saying it. And I think I know why. I think there's a temptation to think if I just keep saying it, maybe it'll actually be true. Maybe, I, maybe if I just keep saying, things will just work out, they'll just work out, they'll just work out, they'll just work out. It's going to be okay in the end. It's all going to be okay in the end. Maybe I'll forget about my troubles. Maybe I'll fill up everything that I know to just be this thing that I want to make true. Instead of realizing, that, like in this moment with the disciples, Jesus has been clear. I'm going to go away. One of you is going to betray me. You can't follow me right now. But don't let your hearts be troubled. The homeward perspective is what he uses to address these things. So let's look at the culprits. You know, Peter's already said his thing, and foot is right back in mouth. Now we have Thomas and Philip speaking up. Thomas, we've heard before in the Lazarus story, when Jesus decides, hey, let's go back to Bethany, because our friend Lazarus is dead. Thomas speaks up, and he says, hey, look, it seems to me that when Jesus sets foot in Bethany, there's enough people that want to kill him that they're going to take him out right there. So Thomas's words are, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas has a knack for kind of setting things up with his own observations. He set up this greater grander concept of what Jesus teaches us that if anyone would come after me they must take up their cross deny themselves and follow me, right? That we need to lay down our own lives our own rights to follow Jesus as well just as he laid his life down on the cross. And here, Thomas does a similar thing. As you read this, did you consider that it seems as though some of the most precious words in our Bibles, some of the things that we memorize from a young age, came about from the mouth of Jesus because of what Thomas said to him. Jesus knows what's going on, and of course he knows just the right things to say. But in verse 5, after saying, you know the way to where I am going, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know the way you're going. How can we know the way? It's a very simple mathematical conclusion that the doubter brings. Thomas says, I don't know where you're going. Ergo, how am I going to get there? Right? It's like, it's like a very obvious conclusion in his mind. Jesus keeps talking about leaving and how we can't follow him, but that eventually we will follow him. But he doesn't tell us where we're going. So how are we going to know where to go? If we, how are we going to know the way to go where we don't know where that we're going, right? Sounds a little like Abraham's story. Do you remember when God called Abraham? Take your family, take everything you have, and go to a place I will show you, right? I'm not going to tell you yet. Just go. To Thomas's words, then Jesus responds with those wonderful words in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He points back to himself. See, Thomas's problem was, I don't know enough, I don't know the way, and I feel lost. The troubles of my heart have brought me to feeling lost. Philip then comes in, in verse 8 of our chapter, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. This is a super interesting thing, because bless you, Philip is actually kind of following in the path of a handful of other people in the Old Testament. We could even point back to Moses, when Moses said, ask the Lord, hey, there's one thing I want. I want to see your glory. Show me, show me your glory. And even in that moment, God said, you can't handle my glory, right? Basically, that was his words to him. I will pass through here, and the trail that I leave behind me will be all the glory that you can handle. Philip is basically saying, let me see the face of the Father, and then I'll do whatever you tell me. He's setting his own standard for Jesus, but his troubled heart is saying this, I've not seen enough, I've not seen the Father, and so whereas Thomas feels lost, Philip feels blind. He feels like even if the way was set forth, he can't know it unless he can see it, unless there's some physical, or or some kind of experiential thing, and boy, is that something that we look for, right? I mean, this is going to sound self-serving for me to tell you not to come to church on Sunday morning for the purpose of an experience, right? For some experience of some amazing sermon, or amazing music, or amazing prayer, or amazing chairs to sit in. But it's so easy for us to attach ourselves to experiences, isn't it? The reasons that we continue to follow Christ or the reasons that we move forward in our spiritual life, so often we attach them to that one moment when I I got baptized or I said a prayer or I went to Bible college or those, those high mountaintop experiences, they're very good, but when we rely on them, it's very easy to start to make an idol out of those experiences and not the God whom we met in the middle of them. And that's Jesus' answer to Philip. Look at verse 9, if you will. Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, this verse always reminds me of when I just become a Christian. I was just reading the Bible, and I remember reading this for one of the first times and thinking, oh my goodness, Jesus is the Father. And really, the heresy bell should have sounded in my life. Because that's not true. Jesus is not the Father. Okay? What we believe in what, what Scripture shows us is that God is triune. The Bible doesn't use that word triune. But God is presented to us in his word as one God in three persons. And if that doesn't make sense to you, that's fine. It doesn't make sense to anyone because God is totally different than us. So what is Jesus saying when he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father? How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Verse 10, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So do you hear distinction there? I am in the Father, the Father is in me, the works that I'm doing, the Father is doing through me. Jesus makes an appropriate distinction, whereas Philip makes an inappropriate distinction. Philip thinks the difference between the Father and the Son is one of glory and of true greater impact. And Jesus says, you've seen the work of the Father this entire time. And when you are with me, you are with the Father. Why? Because Jesus is the Father? No, Jesus is God the Son. But the reason that we can be with the Father is because of who the Son is as an intermediary, as a go-between. So Jesus communicates God the Father to us. Not only that, but he brings us into the presence of God the Father because of his presence with him himself. So Philip's problem, his trouble, is in what he thinks he needs to see. And the Lord corrects him. And I believe, again, gently, he, he lets down this problem that he has and says, Hey, listen to where your trouble's really coming from. It's coming from a problem of misunderstanding me. That's something we've seen in the Gospel of John over and over and over again. Earlier in John chapter 12, John the writer quotes from Isaiah 12, 36 through 43, and he says that, um, excuse me, this is verse 38 of chapter 12. So that the word would be, the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled as people disbelieve. Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, John says. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. See, even in that last phrase from Isaiah, this hardening of the hearts and the blinding of the eyes, God is not in one sense saying, hey, you know what's going to happen now is I am going far away and I am going to be inaccessible. Because he says at the end of that, if they would see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, I would heal them. See, We think repentance, which literally means to turn around, we often think of repentance, or maybe it's just me. I don't know. We often think of repentance as me turning from sin and starting to get back to Jesus as though when I turn from sin, he's a mile away because my sin has brought me so far from him, right? And, and now I have to begin the process of earning my place back with Jesus where he really is when the truth that he shows from his word is that if you turn, I would heal you. Why? Why? Why, how would God be able to do that unless he was right there? So the moment of our repentance is not a moment of, all right, I'm going to start looking for Jesus now. It's our turning from sin to find him standing right behind us the entire time. And that the true distance between us and God has only been a matter of our effort and not his willingness to be far from us. But again, the solution that Philip, that Thomas come to is if we could know enough to calm our hearts, Right? If we could just collect enough information and reach some higher plateau of spirituality. When Jesus points to, a, points to himself and says, what you really need is me. That's why when Jesus says in verse four, you know the way to where I'm going, we ought to remind ourselves again and again that Jesus knows our hearts and he knows what we know. And if we know him, then we know enough. That is not to say, forget your Bibles, throw out the Bible study, don't come to Sunday school, don't come to church, you don't need to know anything except for Jesus. But the security that we find in our homeward perspective, in the midst of our troubled hearts, is not in some great theological discovery of knowledge. It's in a closeness with Christ. So Jesus dissects their faith in this time. He starts to pull things apart and put them back together the way they ought to be. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. See, our own reasoning leads us further from true knowledge of Christ because it starts with the starting point of I need some experience, I need some knowledge, and the way to get to that is my own efforts. That's at the root of what sin tempts us to. Sin tempts us to say, I can get there on my own steam. And Christians who believe in the doctrines of grace that we're saved not because of anything we've done, but because of the work of Christ on the cross, we're not immune to that temptation. In a lot of ways, we're more susceptible to it, maybe in a different way. That ultimately, we want to live lives that honor Christ, and we think that that has to come from ourselves. The trouble of our rebel hearts comes from a world that's collapsing in on itself as well. It comes from the world around us where everything else that you experience in your life is performance-based. It's all about what you can accomplish. What do you bring to the table? Yet when you come to Christ, he says, look, I'm the vine. You're the branches. You can do nothing apart from me. And that's not a criticism because we see the heart of Christ in the Word of God. In John 15, when he says that, he's not saying, you guys are just useless, What he's saying is stop judging yourself on your own performance. Because not only will you not measure up to God's standard, but you'll find yourself lost and doomed to an eternity apart from him. Because hell is ultimately God saying, your will be done. You want to be away from me. You want to live a life centered around your own efforts. Here's all that there is apart from me. The world around us is destroying itself with that attitude. And it seeps in. Poisons the water, as it were. But the comfort of Christ comes from a home that is not collapsing in on itself as this world is, but it is opening up to us. Such that when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and the emphasis on that for this morning, I mean, you could could take verse 6 and just make a three-point sermon that would be awesome out of that verse. We're not going to take too much time to look at life and truth here because the emphasis is on I am the way. Jesus doesn't say I am assigned to the way or I can tell you the way or I can help you find the way. He says I am the way to the Father. I am the way. That's why in verse 4 before that he says you know the way. Thomas, well, I don't know the way. I don't. Know. How can we get there? We don't know the way. And Jesus says it's because I am. I am the way. Sometimes we need to let Jesus tell us what we know and not the other way around. Sunday morning, whether you're preaching, listening to sermon, teaching Sunday school, or or in whatever context where you are considering the things of God, it's never about us saying, hey, Jesus, here's this wonderful sermon I came up with, or here's all these great discoveries I found in, in your word. It's what he has shown to be true to us. That's why when you study this, you study this book like no other book. Because God's word has such a power that it connects you to the author directly. Any other book written by any other author is open to our own interpretation. How would I like to interpret The Hobbit? And how would I like to consider the significance of certain characters in this story or that story? Yeah, we're free to do that because none of us are going to get to fly out to London and talk to J.R.R. Tolkien about what he intended. But once you could, if you did, when he was around you would find, oh man, I I might have misunderstood these things because I thought about it through my own eyes, through my own understanding. Meeting the author changes everything. We need to cling to Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And to see that in clinging to him, what we know is all about who we know, not about facts, not about accomplishments, not about our own performance, and not even about our own problems. Not even to say, look, all these problems amount to a thing where maybe God thinks I'm a really special Christian who can handle all these things, whereas somebody else might not be able to. Our problems are meant to drive us to Christ, to give us that homeward glance, that perspective that is vertical and not horizontal, not looking around, but looking up at the place of our hearts consider his great grace to us in this, and that when he's saying these words to us it is in the dark night of his soul, the hour of his own troubling we learned in 1321 that now Jesus's heart is troubled and what does he do? does he just go on to express forever about how troubled his heart is? I mean there could be books upon books written about what suffering the wrath of God in the place of another person, was like as an experience, but no, instead he turns his heart and his attention to his disciples and he says, let not your hearts be troubled because I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. I've prepared a place for you. I'm going to get it ready. I'm going to bring you back to it. And if it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you. What is this way? This is the big question of Thomas and Jesus's big answer in verse six. It might bring to mind chapter 10, verse 7, where Jesus, describing himself as a good shepherd, also calls himself the door of the sheep, that no one comes in and out except through him. It's the same thing. The only way to God the Father, the only way to everlasting life is through Christ. And the assurance that Jesus speaks in in this section of 11 verses is all about what he's about to go do at the cross that he is going to go and take our place. No one takes my life from me, he says, but I lay it down of my own will. It was my decision. Yeah, Judas is going to betray. Yeah, I'm going to be arrested. Yeah, the crowds are going to prompt Pilate to say, crucify him and send him off to make that happen. No one takes his life from him. He lays it down. And that's where the assurance comes from. He knows that he will accomplish what the Father called him to do. The inevitability of the cross is not just a product of the night of this world, of the collapsing in of creation, but rather it's the means by which God addresses the deepest trouble of our hearts with our sin. It's the means by which the light brings us to himself. It's the means by which we see Christ to truly be the way. And that this Christian pilgrimage that we're on is not a pilgrimage to get from point A to point B, but to stay with Christ along the path because he is the way. Philip asks, show us the Father. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory. He's the outshining, that the sun shines on the earth. You know, we see this light that is produced by the sun, right? And Jesus, in some way, acts as that towards us, that he reveals who the Father is. He warms us with the life that he has in his heavenly Father. John 1.18, as we've referred to many times, that no one has ever seen God. God. Yet Jesus Christ, the one and only begotten Son of God, has, John says, made him known to us. It is all about closeness to Christ. Notice Jesus leaves no room for his disciples to doubt his intention to return to them. If one person doesn't come to Christ, it's not because... Christ had not had enough mercy or enough grace for them. He's there. He is willing. And if you don't know Christ this morning, the exhortation from God's word is this, first and foremost. Turn to Christ. Trust in him. Take your sins to him. Take all your shame, all your troubles, all that stuff. And know that he's not far. Because if you will turn, he will heal you. What's the completion of this? Walk by the way and rest in his return. Having dealt with our troubled hearts, Christ frees us to walk with him and to rest in that hope of his return that he will bring us back home and that our lives then just simply become walk with the way, rest in his return, and repeat it over and over and over again. One uh, preacher in England asks this question to himself every morning. He says, why is today a good day? And the answer he always tells himself is because I'm one day closer to seeing Jesus. And every day that we walk in the way, walk with Christ, we are becoming closer to him. And that expectation and that excitement for that day increases. And that's what we're called to do. Though the night is growing darker and troubles seem greater, I mean, my goodness, you look around the world, it's terrifying. But these are all just signs of that sure return of Christ. That's the comfort that Jesus left his disciples with and that's the comfort he leaves us with as well. Now, the way is one of suffering. He has to go to the cross, and we too have to follow in that way of suffering, but the suffering is not just suffering for the suffering's sake, but it is the way that God has chosen to bring us into the home where there will be no suffering, there will be no troubling of the hearts ever again. So three things to leave you with. How does walking in the way and resting in the return of Christ bring our troubled hearts home? First of all, when my heart is troubled, walking by the way of Christ and resting in his return reminds me that there's a redemptive purpose to the trouble that I face. All of the trouble. Even the things that just seem insignificant. Those big relational issues that you're dealing with and the splinter that you showed up in your finger after you worked in the yard. From the small things to the great things. Christ has purposed for us as we walk with him to be remembering his presence with us day by day and not just day by day, but moment by moment. And so there is a redemptive purpose to all of the troubles that you face. None of it is outside of the sovereign reach of our God. Secondly, when my heart is troubled, walking by the way and resting in his return reminds me that trouble is temporary, but my home is eternal when I'm with Christ in the midst of whatever troubles I'm facing, I'm reminded that my home is not going to be corrupted. I won't show up when, when heaven comes to earth and when I'm with Christ forever in his kingdom. There's not going to be a day I wake up to a leaky roof or a groundhog, you know, trying to make a home underneath my house. True story for right now. But not in that home. Not in that home. Trouble is temporary, but our home will be internal. And then lastly, when my heart is troubled, walking by the way and resting in his return will remind me the way who is with me is confident of my destination. He is more sure that I will make it to home than I am. And that is huge for me, you guys. My goodness, because there are some days that you just wonder, right? Am I doing this right? Is this good enough? Is Christ happy with my life? Should I have said something different 10 seconds ago? The way who is with me is confident in my destination. Verse 4 again. You know the way to where I'm going. Let Jesus tell you what you know when you walk with him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness, your patience with us, your kindness. We thank you for the way in which you deal with our troubles. You're not that friend or that person that we know that thinks, oh, let me tell you about me. Look what's on my shoulders. The words of your son bring us comfort. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe, believe, believe. The constant refrain of this book of John has been believe. The whole reason it was written was so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that in believing we might have Life, because we know the way, because we know the truth, because we know the life. Lord, I pray for all of us here that as we face our troubles and as we think too smallly of them or think too highly of them, or however we make our perspective in this world, in the horizontal, in the observations of this life, would you fix our eyes homeward to you, that you might be glorified and that we might be able to rest in the promise of your return. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.